Go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 11. It is my privilege to meditate with you on the Word of God this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11, the first 11 verses of Mark 11. In churches all around the world today, congregations like ours are celebrating Palm Sunday. This story that we're about to meditate on today is one that literally hundreds of millions of people uh, will have heard from one of the, at least one of the four Gospels by the time this day ends. Now Palm Sunday, of course, is uh, the day we commemorate uh, when our Lord rode into Jerusalem on a donkey through a very, very enthusiastic and hopeful crowd of Jews who were waving palm branches and they were hailing him as the promised Messiah, the Savior uh, whom they expected would do very great things for them. And of course, he already had done some great things. Uh, he had established himself as a great spiritual teacher, a prophet in the eyes of the people. He had healed the sick. Uh, he uh, made blind people see again. And he'd also even raised a few people from the dead. And so the people are thinking, well, this is such a great man that he's got to be God's anointed one. He's going to be the one who's going to restore the throne of David. He's going to be uh, our king. He's going to be our Messiah. And they got that part right. But they weren't thinking high enough. Their aim was pretty low. They weren't thinking high enough. They thought the Messiah would be an earthly king who would get the Romans off their backs, among other things, in the nation of Israel would live again. But as we look at this story and consider what's going to happen very soon and in the rest of this week, why is this a triumphal entry? What in the world makes this a triumphal entry? Because after all, Jesus entered, enters Jerusalem with a whole lot of cheers, but in just a couple of days there's going to be nothing but jeers, right? Uh, today, uh, there are palm branches and singing, but very soon, there's going to be nothing but angry accusations and absolute rejection by his own people. Today, there is hope, but on Friday, there is going to be the greatest despair that the universe has ever experienced. And so I've always found it a little bit odd that we celebrate this day as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. I've often wondered if maybe we ought to put some air quotes around triumphal. But in reality, this really is a triumphal entry. This really is a triumphal entry because Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what's going to happen to him this week. Uh, according to his Father's will, Jesus is intentionally setting into motion what must happen for you and me to be saved from the eternal wrath of God our Father because of our sin. And so today is a very important passage indeed uh, to help us to understand who Christ is. This is a story that we find in each one of the four Gospels. Our account in the Gospel of Mark is probably, uh, it is probably the first written record of, of this entry into Jerusalem. This was written by a man named John Mark. He was not one of the original 12 disciples, but he was a follower of Christ indeed. And we read about him in Acts chapter 12, and we find out that he is the son of a widow named Mary. Now, we don't know whether Mark was present for the events that he writes about, 
but he heard about them firsthand from the Apostle Paul and uh, even more so the Apostle Peter. He hung out with both of them a lot. He was a valuable partner in ministry with them. And so as Matthew uh, and uh, Luke uh, write their Gospels, they uh, depend on uh, what Mark is saying in his uh, Matthew, uh, who along with Peter was an eyewitness to Christ, repeats uh, Mark's account very faithfully, and that gives us a measure of reassurance that Mark's account is truly accurate, because Matthew was there, we know that. And so Mark and Luke and Matthew tell uh, the story very similarly with Jesus uh, arriving and going into Jerusalem while John, on the other hand, approaches it from a different perspective. He was another eyewitness to Christ. He was there. Uh, he tells it from the perspective of the people hearing about Jesus coming and going out to meet him as he approaches Jerusalem. But it's all the same story. All the facts line up. Uh, they all tell the same story. And so each of the four gospel writers, uh, there are some different details that they add. They're just adding their touches uh, uh, that gives us a more complete picture of this scene on this incredible day. And so here in Mark, uh, we have a straightforward and true account of the moment that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the annual Passover celebration, just a few days before he's crucified. There are a million or more people who have gathered in this city, and it's a very, very highly charged atmosphere. Now, leading up uh, to this, in chapter 10, just to give us a little bit of context, on his way into Jerusalem with his disciples, and we're not just talking about the 12 disciples now, uh, we're talking about a throng of followers. Uh, the, that core group of 12 was with him, uh, but there were also probably a couple hundred people with him as well. Uh, Jesus pauses and tells his disciples something very, very important that he's already told them twice. And so now he tells them a third time. And he says this in verse 33, uh, beginning in verse 33 of chapter 10. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise it's pretty clear that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to him there's no doubt and Jesus could not be any more clear to the disciples about what's ahead but the disciples are fixated on other things they're fixated on the potential here for political power Having watched Jesus raise from the dead not only Lazarus, but earlier in his ministry, a boy and a girl, uh, they're thinking that, well, maybe Jesus can't die. Maybe that's what's going on here, and this is what, me what it means that his reign will be eternal. Uh, he just simply can't die. Well, they've got that partly right, don't they? Uh, but only partly right. The growing sense here among the people and among the disciples is, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to save us from oppression. He's going to restore the, the nation of Israel. This is their greatest hope. And you know what? This is such a highly charged atmosphere. This, this is in the air. They're anticipating the rise of Jesus as their king. And all Jesus has to do is snap his fingers and call for arms 
And he's got an instantaneous army of willing Jews who are ready to fight the Romans, ready to do what they can to overthrow the Romans. And in fact, one of his 12 disciples, that core group, is a man named Simon the Zealot. And that means that he's a part of this party that really wants to, to, to get to work and, and, uh, and rebel against the Romans and see if they can overthrow them. And so in this atmosphere of the king, the, the, the coming king, uh, he's sort of the king-elect in effect, uh, he's coming into town, uh, two of his disciples, James and John, they start jockeying for political power in chapter 10. They're anticipating when Jesus uh, gets power, when he walks up and sits on his throne, and they're ready to be part of his cabinet when he gets, gets his power. Grant us to sit, they say, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory, they say. Now, of course, Jesus reminds them that they really don't know what they're asking for. And then he tells them in verse 43, uh, beginning in verse 43 in chapter 10, he says this. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that his kingdom is going to be established in a way that no other kingdom has ever been established, and that is through the death of the king. And he's not only saying that, he's saying that this kingdom is going to be like no other kingdom that has ever been. It's going to be a heavenly kingdom. And he is going to reign from ever, forever and ever from the right hand of God after he gives his life as a ransom for many. And so with all of this swirling around, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're about five hours walk from the Temple Mount. They're in Jericho. And Je Jesus demonstrates once again that the kind of kingdom that he's establishing is going to be different. And he heals a blind man named Bartimaeus. And this is one more sign for the people that says that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, that we not only want to follow Jesus, but we want to put him on the throne. And that brings us to the very first verse of chapter 11 of Mark. And we'll read these 11 verses. I'll read them for us. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, What are you doing? Or why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and, send, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the understanding of his word. Well, as we begin to contemplate this story let's ask ourselves a question why is this story in the bible and not only that why why is it not only in the bible but in all four of the gospels what's so important about this story why is it that the holy spirit found this so important that he inspired all four writers of the gospels to record it so faithfully Well, I've heard this story of Christ's suffering and death, beginning with this story of his entry into Jerusalem, presented in a way that makes it sound as if our Lord was a victim of circumstances, that the events that begin on this day and end with his crucifixion are not controlled by him or by God the Father, but they're actually controlled by a bunch of misled and mean-spirited people, and that Jesus didn't really have to die for our sins. I've heard that many, many times, and I remember vividly uh, one day, years and years ago, uh, talking to a man, and this is breathtaking, he blamed the Jews for the death of Christ, and therefore, he said, and I'll never forget the look in his eyes as he said this, therefore, the Jews deserved what Hitler did to them in the Holocaust. And of course, he was forgetting that it wasn't the Jews who killed, killed Jesus. It was our sin that made the cross necessary. But you know, he seemed to be saying that if the Jews did not kill Jesus, then he would not have had to have died. And when I began to object to all of this, he literally threw me out of his house. I'll never forget that. But you know what? This is a common heresy today. It's been a common heresy for a very long time. This is one that claims that the violence of the cross was unnecessary. This is an old-fashioned way of thinking about things. And all of this violence in the Bible just needs to be removed and forgotten because God is love and all of those kinds of things. And and we just need to forget about all of that. That our, our sin isn't really that bad because God just forgives us all. And along with that goes this idea that Jesus was the victim of circumstances that he wasn't in control of what was going on. You see, this is what happens to us when we drift away from understanding the scripture for what it's plainly saying to us. We explain away the facts. We end up explaining away the horror and the cost of our sin. We end up explaining away our Savior, and we end up turning him into into something that he's not. But brothers and sisters, here's why this story is in our Bibles, and it's in our Bibles four times. What the Holy Spirit, through Mark, wants us to know more than anything from this account of our Lord entering Jerusalem is this, that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and why he's doing it. What happens beginning in Mark 11 is no accident of history. This is God in the flesh fulfilling the purpose that God his Father had sent him to accomplish. 
And so let's take a look at this story today by contemplating two very remarkable facts that rise up out of Mark's account. First, Jesus intentionally fulfills prophecy. He intentionally fulfills prophecy. Secondly, Jesus intentionally allows himself to be publicly proclaimed the Messiah for the very first time. And we're going to see the significance of that. And then, in the end, consider what this means for us. So first, Jesus intentionally fulfills prophecy. We see this in the simple fact that he tells his disciples to go get a donkey colt. Now, you know, they're, they're on the outskirts of Jer Jerusalem. They're maybe an hour or so away from the Temple Mount now. And Jesus tells his disciples to go get this donkey. Now, whether this was prearranged or something that Jesus knew supernaturally, it, it really doesn't matter. Uh, but Jesus is telling his disciples in verse 2 that they're going to find a colt tied up and waiting for him in the village ahead and to go get it. And this is a colt that had never been ridden before. Now here's the remarkable thing. This is something that Zechariah had prophesied about 500 years before the birth of Christ. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so, of course, the disciples, being obedient to Christ, they go and, and do what he says, and they, they find the donkey just as Jesus had said, and they bring it back for him to ride. And so in this little story here, we can see that Jesus is very careful to fulfill this tiny little prophecy that we find in Zechariah 9.9. And the reason he does it is because after the resurrection, it's going to be very important for the disciples to remember this. In fact, in John's account of the triumphal entry, he records this in John 12, 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And so Jesus' fulfillment of this, of this little prophecy about riding a ridiculous animal like a donkey into Jerusalem at this moment is very intentional and he did it so that the disciples and so that we could remember it after his resurrection and through that be reassured that Jesus really is the true Messiah but you see there's something else that's really remarkable uh, that's built into this story beyond the fact that Jesus is fulfilling this, Zechariah, uh, this uh, prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, and that's that Jesus is about to ride a donkey that's never been ridden before. And this is very important for at least two reasons. The first is that animals in the, in the Jewish law that God had, had given them, uh, these animals that were set aside for God were always animals without spot or blemish. They were the best of the bunch. They were never used for anything else. They were set aside for God and God alone. And so they were the best, the pick of the litter, so to speak. The, the spotless, best lamb of the flock was the one that was always chosen for the sacrifice to atone for sin. And, of course, this reminds us of how we call Jesus the Lamb of God. He was the spotless lamb who went to the cross, who, is, who the Father sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins. And so whenever the ancient Hebrews uh, 
did this, uh, and we look back on it, this gives us a vivid picture of the cost of sin. Paul says in Romans that the wages of sin is death. Scripture always expresses the cost of sin in this way. And so then we find that even the objects that were used in the temple for worship were never used for anything else except for what God said they were for. And they were always made of the finest materials. Even the tomb in which Joseph of Arimathea uh, lays Jesus after his crucifixion, as three of the four Gospels tell us, was one in which no one had ever yet been laid. And so here we have this idea of things being set apart for the service of God, for a divine purpose, a sacred purpose. And so as we look at this, as we look at this donkey that it was obviously set aside for the use of Christ, and we look at this tomb that was set aside for the use of of Christ, we see that all of these little miracles of logistics and circumstances, all of these prophecies, there are hundreds of them, all of it confirms to us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. All of them point to who he is. It's a wonderful thing that God has shown us this. Now there's a second very important thing about this donkey cult that also confirms who Jesus is. He's about to ride a cult that's never been ridden before. It's not been broken. It's not been broken. Now I consulted with our resident equine veterinarian, and ask her about this, because I wasn't sure of the answer to the question. I asked her, well, does a a colt donkey need to be broken? And she says, absolutely, absolutely. You can't just hop on an animal that's never been ridden before and expect that things are going to go very well, right? So uh, this donkey colt, Amanda thinks, is probably about two years old, and that makes sense because it's got to be big enough to ride. It's got to be big enough to carry an adult man. And uh, it's got to be also big enough so that Jesus' toes don't drag in the dirt, right? So this cult uh, would be a cult until it's about three years old, and it's usually somewhere around in there that they begin to think about training the animal to accept a rider. Sometimes it's earlier, but here we see that this is a cult that's never been ridden before. And here's the thing about donkeys. And uh, Amanda told me this little proverb that's wonderful that helps us to understand how remarkable it is that Jesus sat on this animal. She says, she, she tells me this proverb like this. If you want a horse to do something for you, you just ask and he does it. If you ask a mule, he'll ask you a few clarifying questions and argue your point, but then do it. If you ask a donkey you wait until he comes up with the same idea himself. <laughs> so that, that gives us a pretty clear picture of what we're dealing with here. It, donkeys have minds of their own, to say the least, and I would imagine this would be especially true of an unbroken donkey colt. And none of this would be lost on anyone in the ancient world hearing this story as Mark tells it. It makes what Mark says in verse 7 incredibly remarkable. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. He sat on it and he rode that donkey. That's amazing. Now, of course, as we look back through the lens of the New Testament and through the lens of his resurrection and the cross, of course, this really shouldn't be a surprise. 
Jesus is the one through whom all creation was created, right? Without whom, as John says, uh, was not anything made that was made, and that includes donkeys, of course. And so I guess this makes Jesus the ultimate horse whisperer or donkey whisperer, right? But let's not let my corny sense of humor get in the way here. Let's not make us think that this is a trivial matter. This is incredibly important. It was so important that it was prophesied about. It was so important that even Jesus pointed it out. This is an unbroken cult. And all of this together, all of this together points to who Jesus really is. That he's the Lord of all creation. He is God himself. Now, have you ever thought about that when you've read this story that a cult, a donkey cult that had never been ridden could mean that much? Hallelujah. And so we find that Jesus intentionally fulfills prophecy. Secondly, we find that Jesus allows himself to be publicly proclaimed the Messiah for the very first time. And so let's understand the significance of this. Now, earlier in Jesus' ministry, we might remember uh, that he often told his followers not to talk about what he had done for them. This is exactly what he told Jairus and his family after he raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. In Mark chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says, uh, it, it describes what Jesus told them. It says, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Jesus want, didn't want him to say anything because he, uh, as he says in several places in the Gospels, my time has not yet come. You see, it wasn't time for him to step forward in a direct way as the Messiah. John 7 verse 30 uh, talks about how the, the Jewish leaders were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And so God the Father and the Holy Spirit and Christ are all working together uh, to make things happen when they are supposed to happen. But the hour for Christ has come in Mark 11. The hour has come. And we know this because of the way that Jesus enters Jerusalem. The Jewish custom for, was for every able-bodied person to walk into Jerusalem, those last, that last bit, to walk into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. But as soon as Jesus climbs aboard that donkey colt, the people immediately take the cue and they respond. They respond by laying down palm branches in the road, their cloaks in the road, they sing praises to God. This is a reception that's fit only for a king. And the message is very clear. Jesus is ready to accept the acclamation of the people as their Messiah. He's no longer discouraging people from proclaiming him. In fact, Luke tells us how some of the Pharisees in the crowd told Jesus to rebuke his disciples for their celebration. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is the Messiah. And even though the people don't yet understand what that really means, they will, especially when they look back on his fulfillment of this little prophecy in Zechariah. 
They're going to understand then uh, how a king doing a victory lap after his conquest of a nation would never ride a donkey but a horse. A donkey is the symbol of peace and humility. It is a symbol of the kind of kingdom that Christ is establishing here. Now, of course, we, we can never overlook the fact that this donkey ride of Jesus is a shadow of what's going to come someday. The book of Revelation tells us how Jesus is going to come again. And when he does, let me tell you, he's going to be riding a white horse and he's going to permanently conquer the enemies of God. But not yet. That hour has not yet come. And so in the meantime, on this donkey, Jesus is putting his real purpose on display. And what he means by this donkey ride is, is something different from what the people think it means. What Jesus means by his ride on the donkey is that he isn't interested in politics. It means that he's not interested in political power. He's not interested in worldly power. And the reason for that is because he's interested in a far greater power. In fact, he possesses that power. And he is interested in doing the Father's will. This is what Jesus says about the will of his Father in John 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the, on the last day. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is interested in our souls. He's interested in saving us from the wrath of God. And in in saving us from the wrath of God, he's interested in establishing a spiritual kingdom of peace. He's interested in being the king of kings, not merely a king. And what this means is that he's riding into town not to conquer men, but to save them. He's riding into town to save them from the wrath of God, to make peace between unworthy sinners and a holy God who is their righteous judge. But of course the people don't understand any of this. And if there are any who do, Mark doesn't mention them. The Jewish leaders certainly don't understand. All they see is the threat that Jesus is to their power. Jesus knows that all this hoopla about him is only going to fuel the Pharisees' hatred of him. And it's only going to encourage their desire to kill him. And of course, killing him is something they've been wanting to do for quite a while now. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 5, Uh, It says this in verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking, breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so for a very long time, they have hated Jesus, and they have hated him because they thought that they were the righteous ones, and Jesus was the blasphemer. And so as Jesus is entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Jewish leaders even add poor Lazarus to their hit list. He's died once already, and now they want to kill him. Just a couple of weeks after he's been raised from the dead. And the reason that they want to do that is they want to get rid of, of the evidence of Jesus' miracles. They want to get rid of the evidence of the power of Christ, the authority that he has over even death. 
In John chapter 12, verses 18 and 19, it says the reason why the crowd went out to meet him from Jerusalem, I'm paraphrasing, was that they heard that he had done this sign, that is, raising Lazarus from the dead. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. In other words, he's stealing our thunder. And we've got to do something about this really quick. And so with the people shouting praises to God for the coming kingdom of our father David in verse 10, this is just confirming to the Pharisees that this guy has to go. He's dangerous to our power and our reputation. And so in just a couple of days, they're going to insist that Jesus be crucified, frankly, because they just don't want to hear the truth of God. They don't want to hear it. Even though they know the scriptures and ought to know that Jesus is the Messiah, they don't want to hear the truth because that means in accepting Jesus as their Messiah, they're going to have to accept their own unrighteousness. Now before we pass judgment on them for that, we've got to look in the mirror, don't we? And realize that that's exactly how we feel sometimes. We don't want to hear the truth of God when it convicts us of our sin at times. We don't, we don't want to hear that we're unfaithful to God or unrighteous. We want to stand in our own righteousness. And so we need to repent of that. The Pharisees needed to repent of that, but they didn't. But you know, I think all of this is one reason that verse 11 kind of stands out as being so lonely if we can just skip ahead for a moment the city is literally bursting at the seams with people with with a million or more people and it says that Jesus goes up to the temple and looks around there's no welcoming committee for him there congratulations on your election to be king sir there's there's no there's no royal reception for him with music and trumpets and all of that kind of thing. There's nothing. He looks around. And what does he see? Well, he sees that his house, and it is his house, his house has become a den of thieves. And he's going to point that out very poignantly tomorrow. The Jewish leaders, he knows, are rejecting him and they're looking for a way to kill him and he knows they're going to find it. He's helping them to find it, as a matter of fact. What a triumphal entry. And so Jesus and the 12, they go back to Bethany and they spend the night. It's as if Jesus says, well, we're done today. Let's, let's go get some sleep. Tomorrow's going to be a big day. But let's go back to the noise and the, the, the celebration of, of verses 8 through 10 as Jesus rides his donkey. The people are shouting their praises from Psalm 118. This is the, the verses that uh, Conrad shared with us earlier. Uh, Psalm 118 is part of a group of what are called Hallel Psalms, that is praise songs. These Hallel Psalms are sung, uh, were sung at the various Jewish festivals throughout the year including Passover, which, of course, is the occasion in Mark 11. And so as the people are watching Jesus ride by on his donkey, the, the, these songs are taking on a whole new meaning for them. Hosanna! <laughs> Hosanna! Whoa, look at him! Hosanna! Save us! That's what Hosanna means. It's Hebrew for save us. And so if we look at, at verse 25 of Psalm 118, we can kind of catch maybe a little glimpse of what they might have wanted God to save them from. 
Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. That's a plea for help, isn't it? It's not unlike our prayers today when we hope for God to to fix our circumstances, to make our lives better, to to work on our family relationships, uh, even to, oh Lord, give us political power with a king who will make Israel great again. I mean, it's very similar. And it's not a bad prayer. We want our family relationships to be good. We want our circumstances to be good. We want our country to be good and godly. We want those things. It's, It's a good thing to want. Give us success. Success against our enemies. Success economically. Success when it comes to our rights and privileges. Hosanna, help us. Save us. Prosper us, O Lord. The problem is, is when we set our hope in those things rather than on the man who's riding by on the donkey and in all that he is. Because Jesus, after all, does answer their prayers and and ours but not in the way that they expect and I think there's a lesson here for us today Jesus answers their prayer not by fixing their earthly circumstances but by fixing their heavenly circumstances he does it by intentionally fulfilling prophecy so that after his death and his resurrection we would be able to recognize who he is and be sure that he is indeed the Lord of all creation And he does it by allowing himself to be publicly proclaimed the Messiah for the very first time so that, very intentionally, so that the ire of those who want to kill him is going to be kindled and carried into action. In other words, so that the bloody cross will become a reality. And so if we doubt whether the blood is necessary, you got to argue with Jesus. Because that's what he was doing. And he was doing it intentionally. He paid the bloody price for our sins. So that our relationship with our Father would be restored forever and ever and ever. Jesus is no victim of circumstance. He's actually in total control. He knows exactly what he's doing. And and as one commentator puts it beautifully, absolute power was demonstrated by a man riding on a donkey. There's the picture of triumph for us. And it really is a triumphal entry. It's triumphal because Jesus accomplished the will of his Father. And he accomplished it in an exact way. He did exactly what he set out to do. It's triumphal because Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. None of this is an accident. Jesus is no victim of circumstances. And that blood had to be spilled for us. The angel who appeared to the women at the empty tomb after the resurrection confirms all of this. The angel says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So here's what this means for you and me right now, today. First and foremost, it means that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. And we need Him to shed His blood for us because the cost of sin is terrible and bloody. The cost of my sin, the cost of your sin is terrible. It is death and it means blood. 
God, in his grace and his mercy, saw our need and he met our need. He fixed us by sacrificing his son on the cross. Jesus willingly paid that price for us with his very own blood. And here's what else this means. In this day of division, of highly charged politics, of growing oppression against the truth, let's resist with every fiber of our being the temptation to make Jesus our political hero. That would be a demotion for him. He is our Savior and our Lord. You see, we can easily make the same mistake that the crowd made when they were escorting Jesus into Jerusalem and see him as far less for who he really is. Jesus didn't come to be our political hero. He came to be crucified. He came to be crushed by his father, is what Isaiah says. And he did that so that you and I can have the right to become children of God, is how John puts it at the beginning of his gospel. So that we have the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And Christ came to rise from the dead. We can never forget that. He came to rise from the dead to give us the sure hope of eternal life, which means a restored and never-ending relationship with our God. And that means that every circumstance in our lives that is broken now is going to be made perfect. It'll be fixed when Jesus comes back on his horse. But until then, until then it means that we're living in the very same darkness that Christ came to live in. We're living in a lost and broken world. And as we live in this lost and broken world, it means that our, the foundation of our hope is not who's on the Supreme Court. It is not in our family relationships. It is not the success of our jobs. It is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is in his resurrection. And so what that means for us is that we can be living testimonies of who he is. We can be living testimonies of what he's done. And we can be living testimonies of what he will do for anyone who believes in him. That's what the triumphal entry is all about. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you. We thank you and praise you that you left no detail uh, uh, ignored. We thank you, Father, that your son made such painstaking effort to fulfill even this tiny prophecy of riding a donkey that had never been ridden before because that gives us the hope of the cross and of the resurrection and eternal relationship with you. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.